We're going to read from God's Word. I'm just going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. We've been looking at, at this first letter of Peter for a little while. We're going to come now to chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 13. So it's 1 Peter chapter 2, reading from verse 13. We read, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honour the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's just come and pray. Father, we want to thank you again today for your word that challenges each of us right to the very core of our being. Father, we see the things that you ask of your people and sometimes we're, we're overwhelmed by them. But Father, we thank you that what you call us to, you not only call us and command us to, but you also come in your grace and love to enable and empower us. So Father, guide us and show us today how we can live a life that pleases you in the most challenging of circumstances. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to begin this morning by sharing with you the, the record of a notice that I came across in a book. I don't know where and when this notice was originally put up, whether it was here or the United States, where it was. But this was apparently once pinned to a notice board somewhere. And here it goes. The lodge meeting has been postponed. The wife of the grand, exalted, invincible, supreme potentate won't let him come out tonight. Sounds about right to me now. I share that with you 
Because I think, in, in a way, it illustrates the kind of confusion that there is in our society today, today regarding authority. For the, the old attitudes towards authority largely have been put to the one side, have been rejected. And so now many people today are unsure in a whole variety of ways. Is that me crackling? No? Okay. You sure? Put me off. In a whole variety of, of areas and ways about who's in charge, if anybody should be in charge. And in addition, there's increasing uncertainty all around us about what's right and what's wrong anymore. And so into this mix of, of moral confusion, I believe there are increasing signs that people with power, with worldly power, people who aren't concerned with morality, or certainly at least traditional morality, that they're trying to, to step in here. Owners of media organisation, media figures, industrialists, politicians, who are trying to fill that, that power vacuum that today exists. And they're encouraging a new morality that's far removed from the old biblically-based morality. A new morality which actually is not really a morality at all. Now, it's all about power and, and about selfishness. It's all about getting your own way. It's all about doing what you feel you want to do. And if you're able to get away with it, just do whatever you want to do. Now, even as Christians inevitably living in this society, we've been affected to an extent by what's going on around us. So therefore, many Christians today are unsure about sources of authority in their life, about who has the right to exercise authority over them. Is it just Jesus? Is it just the Word of God? Or are there other legitimate sources of authority that we should recognize in our lives? Yes, and, and what about our reaction to authority? How should we, how can we properly react to authority, living as we do, as we've said, in a society that largely, by and large, has rejected the very notion of authority of any kind. Well, these are the kind of areas that I want to cover now, looking at, at this section here in First Peter. For I'm not going to split this passage up into all its different parts, looking in detail, say, at the relationship between slaves and masters in biblical times. I'm not going to do that this morning, I think I will do the next time we look at Ephesians, but, but not today. Pointed out, just for instance, that this was a, a very different and much more benevolent kind of relationship, the master-slave relationship, than the common kind of US Civil War, American Negro type of slavery with all of its terrible cruelties, which by and large, I think, fashions and forms our view of slavery. But one in the New Testament was very different. But now what I rather intend to do is looking at this passage really in its entirety, looking at it as a whole, and then from it seek to, to look at the whole issue of what it means for a Christian today to live under authority. And certainly what I intend to do, what I hope to do, is answer what I believe are three of the most important questions related to authority. And the first of these is, who has authority? Who has authority, say, in our life as Christians? Well, verse 13 
gives the answer. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. So then the Christian is responsible to all forms of rightful, legally instituted human authority. Irrespective of whether or not the Christian agrees with all or indeed any of the policies that are implemented by that authority. So you see, it's not just the Lord, it's not just the Word of God, it's not even just the rightful government of our day. No, what the Lord demands of us as his people is far more wide-ranging than that. Wayne Grudem, he comments here that the inclusiveness of the word every makes it appropriate to apply this statement, therefore, to other legitimate human authorities. Parents, children, church officers, leaders, members, and authority structures in business, educational institutions, voluntary organisations, etc. God has established such patterns of authority for the orderly functioning of human life. And it both pleases him and honours him when we subject ourselves to them. Nor should we think that the need for authority is only due to sin. For there is authority among sinless angels, Thessalonians 4.16, Jude 9. Among the redeemed in heaven, Luke 19.17. And even among the members of the Trinity for all eternity. For 1 Corinthians 15.28, that talks there of Christ's work at the end of time, as we know it says, that when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. So you see then, even in the Trinity, where there is absolute equality in personhood, absolute equality, if you like, in worth, even in the Trinity, there has to be a degree of authority, that there might be order. Because, you see, our mighty God is a God of order. The world and the universe that he created is marked by its order, by its structure. And so then he wants us, he wants his people to recognize and to live under legitimate authority. That there might be order in our lives and in our society, rather than a continuing descent into anarchy, lawlessness, and chaos. This is God's will for us. He asks this of us. For what does it say in verse 13? Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. But let's move on from this first question, who has authority in our lives as Christians, Let's move on to ask a second and very important question. Probably the most frequently asked question whenever this topic is raised. And that is the what about question. What about when authority is exercised in what seems to us to be an unjust, unfair way? Well, the Bible, I believe, is very clear that as Christians, we should always submit 
to the authority of God. Always submit to the word of God. And we should also submit always to lawful human authorities, except, except when to do so would lead us into sin. The words of Jesus in Mark 12, 17 seem to me in many ways to kind of sum up the, the biblical position. But it says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God. That is, in this context, be obedient to human authorities right up to the point where to be obedient to them would lead you into disobedience towards God. And we see this principle really being worked out in a number of places in the Bible. For example, in Acts chapter 4, where Peter and John, just after the resurrection, have been witnessing in public to Jesus, and then they've been called before the Sanhedrin, the great Jewish ruling council, the ultimate authority in their society. They've been summoned before them and have been ordered to stop. But then verse 19 gives us their reply. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourself whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. However, where authority is not sinful, where it is just unjust or unfair, or at least seems to us to be unjust or unfair. For example, maybe when our employer, our boss, seems to be asking too much of us from our perspective, or seems maybe to be favouring somebody else. But I think, again, the Bible is equally clear. That is, we should submit to that authority. We can, we should, in a reasonable way, present our case, point out the unfairness, point out the injustice, and take a stand for that. But having done that, we should then, not grudgingly, but wholeheartedly, giving of our best, doing what is best, submit to, their, to that authority. Because, I mean, look here. Think about this. Who does Peter here tell the Christians and churches he's writing to to submit to? Among others, in verse 13, he tells them, doesn't he, to submit to the king. To submit to the king, the emperor, as their rightful authority. Or do you know who was their king? Who was their emperor? Who was Caesar at this time? The one who ultimately ruled over them and exercised supreme human authority over them. It was Nero, one of the worst tyrants in human history. Hardly a man known for his fairness and his sense of justice. In fact, Peter, the author of this letter, was later to be put to death in a persecution instigated by Nero. And as we saw right at the very beginning of this series, when we started to look at 1 Peter, it was because Peter knew this persecution was coming that he wrote this letter in order to prepare the church. And yet still, in this context, he says, submit to the king, submit to Caesar as the supreme authority. And when Peter writes here to slaves, if you see Basically what he's saying, he's saying that obedience to authority is only actually noteworthy. It only makes you stand out as a Christian 
when your master or employer or whatever is treating you unjustly, unfairly, though you are doing good. For if you're treated harshly because you're behaving badly, well, what credit is that to you? What complaint do you have? And then to take this on a stage, if you behave well because you're being treated well, well, in what sense is that exemplary? Because pagans, non-believers are capable of that. But the question is, though, why does God expect us to behave in this kind of way? Why does he call us to submit to authority that's been used unjustly, unfairly? Well, I think the answer is at least threefold. In that first, our suffering under unjust authority is a necessary price to pay in order that we at least might play our part in preserving order and authority. I mean, if every time we thought we were being treated badly, we just failed to cooperate. And, you know, there has to be at least the possibility that sometimes we're wrong. But if that's the way we react, all we're doing is contributing to the descent into anarchy and lawlessness in our society. The second reason I believe God asks us to react in this way is because sometimes in ways that are beyond our finite understanding he has things that he can achieve through unjust unfair authorities in ways we don't understand but God in his sovereign power he's able to take the selfish deeds that are done by wicked men and wicked women and he is able to take them and to use them for his glory now, please, I, I want to be clear here. God doesn't make these people do these things. But what he does is he takes what they do into his sovereign purposes and uses them. Just one example of this is, is Cyrus, the, the Persian king, the creator of the great Persian empire. Now, Cyrus was a man of extreme violence. He was a man who regularly and greatly abused his authority. And yet, Isaiah 45 tells us that behind all of his conquests, that there was a divine purpose at work. It says there, I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. You see, God, in, in a way beyond our understanding, was using this man as a means to achieve his purpose for his people. The third, the most probably important reason why God wants us to live in this way, I believe, is because it is just such a powerful witness to the transforming power of the Lord Jesus Christ. For you see, as people see us living in this kind of way, as they see us responding positively and still going on in the face of injustice, well, then you see, that's when they begin to ask questions. How can somebody live like this? How are they able to react in this kind of way? And could it be that the God that they speak of is actually as real and powerful and as at work in their life as they claim? That's what verse 15, I believe, is getting at. For it is God's will that by doing good in the face of injustice... You should silence the ignorant talk 
of foolish men. That is that it's by living in this kind of way, it's by witnessing in this way, by our lives, that we will silence and will even convict those who are ready to slander the gospel, the God of the gospel, and the people of God. But do, do you notice what it says here in verse 16 about freedom? Because, I mean, what we've been talking about so far would seem to be totally contradictory to our views of freedom, submitting to unjust, unfair authority. And yet here in verse 16, in this context, it says, live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. But of course, you see, true freedom, real freedom, is indeed found in living in this way. It's found not in doing our own thing. It's found not insisting our, on our own rights. But rather, true freedom is found in living as the servants of God and doing his will. You see, this is true freedom. As we can choose to do what God wants us to do. As we're able to live in this kind of way, something that we could never do before in ourselves. This is freedom. This is the freedom God created us for. But our third and final question is an all-important question, I believe. That is, how are we able to do this? However, can we be able to live in this kind of way? The answer to this, or at least the, the beginnings of the answer, is here to be found, to be picked out from these verses, I believe. That is, we begin to be able to do this as we are open to God. That's where it begins, as we are open to him in our situation. For you see what it says here in verse 19? It's a very meaningful little phrase. I have to tell you, it was only as I actually studied this passage that I saw it and realized what it was saying. Listen to it. It says, It is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. You see, it's being conscious of God. It's being open to God. It's being aware that God is there, that he cares, and that ultimately he will right all wrongs. It's this, it's faith in him, it's confidence in him that enables a Christian to keep on going in the face of injustice. We won't do it in our own strength. We won't do it by virtue of our determination. Well, because no matter how tenacious we are, eventually we'll be overcome by bitterness and resentment or self-pity and despair. You know, it's not just a, a vague, airy-fairy kind of openness to God that's important. No, because what are the, the concluding verses of this chapter? What are they centering on? The example of Christ. And then, what that example then means for us. Verse 20, see it there. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. 
He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You see, there's nothing that we will ever go through. No injustice that we will ever suffer that will come close to what Jesus went through on our behalf. But do you see how he reacted to it? When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Now, that's not a natural reaction, is it? It's not. It's not the normal, usual response of human beings when they're under attack and when they're hurt. The usual reaction is to try to get even. And if we are powerless and unable to do so, well, we threaten to get even. We, we plan to get even. But Jesus, we're told, doesn't do this. Why? Because instead... He chose, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That is then. Because in this situation, he was open to God. Because he was conscious of the fact that despite the way things might seem, that God, his father, was at work in his situation. You see, it is. It is. When we trust deeply in God, when we believe he is in control ultimately of every situation, it's then that we're able to react differently in the trying situations, the high-pressure situations of life. So what Peter basically practically is recommending here is not expressing our anger when we're wrong. <laughs> Something that's generally kind of advocated in the world out there today as a means of you know, avoiding the stress, the built-up pressure, get it out there. No, nor is Peter recommending suppressing our anger, holding it in, something that invariably is harmful. Harmful. No, what he recommends is deliberately and consciously bringing our situation and bringing our anger and delivering them into God's hands. Leaving it with him as Jesus did. Opening our lives to him. Committing our lives, committing our circumstances to him. But again though, still, we ask the question, don't we? How are we able? How can we be enabled to do this? How can we follow this example of Jesus? The answer I believe that Peter gives us here is that this is possible. This example of Jesus is relevant to us because this example is more than just a theory and a matter of words. It is rather a living spiritual reality in the one who trusts in Jesus Christ. Look at what it says in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Do you see what that's saying? 
that if we, in whatever situation we face in life, if we remember, if we lay hold of, if we live in the light of the fact that by trusting in Jesus we've died to self and sin, and we have committed ourselves to live for God in every circumstances for his glory, for his righteousness. Yes. So if we are not only open to God and conscious of God, but also if we're ready to live for God's glory in the way that he asks, if we come ready to live a crucified life with a desire in our heart to follow Christ's example, then we're told the Lord by his resurrection power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he will give us the strength that we need, the power that we need, the grace and forgiveness that we need to live for him in our circumstances in this way. But you know, we have to turn to him. We have to open our lives to him. We need to come ready to live not for self, not ruled by selfish desires, but rather ready to live no matter what, determined to live no matter what, for his glory. Are you ready to do that? Is that your desire? Are you ready today to say, I want to follow in the footsteps of my Savior? Not just now, not just in this place, but out there in the hard, costly areas of life, the difficult challenges of, that we face in life. Are you ready? Well, let me say it again. Living like this is not easy. It goes against everything that we are as human beings. But it's precisely because of that that this is one of the most powerful witnesses of all to the transforming power of the gospel. God has the power. He can do this in each one of our lives. God has the power. If only we have the desire. By the grace of God and in the power of the Spirit, may that be given to us as well. Let's come and pray together. Father, we just come and we acknowledge that it's not easy. Not easy at times to live for you in this world. And we're all frail human beings. We're all got that root of sin within us. And sometimes self-preservation is what our whole body and flesh cries out for. But Father, we pray, help us. And whatever challenges we face in life, to say, I will seek to live for the glory of God. Help us to come and to yield ourselves to you and to ask you to fill us by your Spirit, to use us to be instruments of your grace and your love, that we might truly be witnesses for you. Be with us, our Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.